Day weekend, which is uh, four days before May 2-4 yeah. this year. Odd enough. So you're going to hear fireworks in the background of this episode. Mm-hmm. For those of you listening uh, who aren't from Canada, uh, May 2-4 weekend is a beloved tradition of ours. It is the celebration of Queen Victoria's birthday. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Queen Victoria hasn't been uh, the monarch in this country for quite some time. But, you know, the, the darndest thing, uh, we still celebrate her birthday. Well but done. this uh, this episode is a bit of a special episode. In the previous episode, we uh, discussed monarchy and we brought a, brought about an analysis of it that was quite in line with what you might expect from the Thought Fuzz guys, if you've been listening to us. You, you few, you band of brothers. Mm-hmm. But this episode is going to be a little bit different. Uh, we're just reacting to the final episode of Game of Thrones. Yep. Uh, we This is something that we both wanted to discuss. The last episode that we did was uh, about monarchy, and uh, it was a, a proposed mini-series that we were going to do about Game of Thrones. Uh, mm-hmm. Funny enough, we actually recorded that episode before the airing uh, the fine uh, of even the first episode of the final season of Game yep. of Thrones. Yep. But we just kind of didn't get around to releasing it until this weekend. And uh, this episode, in ways that we could not predict, answered to that podcast episode that we recorded, starting off with that weird little council. So, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself. Aaron, talk to me. What did you think of this final episode of Game of Thrones? So I didn't like it, uh, and I'm uh, apparently not alone. I think a lot of people had a negative reaction to the whole season, uh, much less the final episode. But uh, maybe we can start here, um, that despite both you and I vociferously uh, disliking this last season, and particularly this last episode, um, to consider that the fans own the product, I think is extremely vain and self uh what is it well self-important and this petition self-aggrandizing yeah and this petition to reshoot the game of thrones is i think pretty silly mike agrees with it uh, agrees with me too and and so um i think regardless of of our opinions on it and it is indeed critical i think we just have to accept it and move on you know let oh, it go certainly so you know of all the things that we're going to say and and we probably are going to be particularly critical uh, in this in this episode, I, I think to start there, I think that's kind of where I want to finish is that, you know, all right, this has happened. It was fun, I guess. Uh, it was more fun at certain times than others, but I'm glad it happened. And I think it will precipitate more fun in other TV shows in the future. And so great. Um, I don't hate this final episode, to be honest with you. It's it's here now. And as a consequence of all the things that came in season seven and eight, for this to be the final episode of that particular way they could have told the story, mm-hmm. I, I, I think I'm fine with it. Mm. So if you haven't watched the final episode yet, spoiler alert, you better turn this off now and just come back when you have watched it, though, mm-hmm. given the the size of the cultural event such as it is that is the Game of Thrones final episode. Mm-hmm. Very likely you've watched it already. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't have turned this on. Mm-hmm. At any rate, Tyrion faces a council of the lords and ladies of the great houses of Westeros to decide the fate of 
Jon Snow, Tyrion presents the case that the right king is the one with the right story. And uh, that tells you something. It, it would appear then that the thesis of Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. if it could be wrapped up into any single thesis, uh, would be that monarchy is a kind of story that we tell each other, an organizing principle, and that mm-hmm. stories mm-hmm. are really the foundation of societies, not, not really their political archi- architecture or their, uh, you know, their tax policy or their their education system or anything like that. It's stories that we tell each other that make a society, that make the seven kingdoms, now six kingdoms. And uh, with that in mind, you can start to understand, if that's really the case, what has uh, transpired all this fan rage about Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones, in its first season, uh, did the nearly impossible, which is it not only presented a fantasy world, but it presented a fantasy world in a manner that was deeply human and intimately relatable. And serious. And serious. And demanded to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And as any good story does, it lays out it lays out its own logic and its own rigorous logic. The interesting thing about Game of Thrones is that the logic that it it rolls out is that of hereditary monarchy and the function of hereditary monarchy and how it ought to work. Right. So when the problems that it presents, correct. Right. Correct. And so when the dramatic thrust of the show is a question of who will sit on the throne amongst competing families, who is right and who is wrong, who is a hero and who is a villain is determined by the legitimacy of their claim to the throne. And Again, like I, I think it would be very easy for us to sit here and just trash talk Game of Thrones, and very easy. Yeah, especially yeah. with regards to the to the latter seasons, yeah. not so much the former seasons, but certainly the latter seasons yeah, when they started deviating right. from the books. That's right. Uh, by necessity, as it were. Mm-hmm. Right. So Australia. the 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 Game of Thrones show rolls out its own logic of monarchy, and mm-hmm. people. I think in a lot of ways have been reacting negatively to the later seasons for what they regard as the ditching of that logic. So what's, what's going on is that the show is correct in a weird sense that stories and storytelling make a system and the system, uh, its citizens in the sense have been the viewers of game of Thrones. They become a kind of Westerosi citizenry vying for their own competing claims of monarchy. Right. And no one's quite satisfied. And so in that sense, it's, it, I, I thought the ending was actually quite quite interesting. But Well, so let's talk about that for a sec because um, we've seen this in a number of franchises in uh, 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 lately. Uh, it can really turn audiences off. And I think that if there's one thing in the last couple seasons of Game of Thrones that's really turned audiences off, it's the uh, the glaring lack of explanation for important things that people actually want to hear about. Right. And it's because people at this point, by the time you get to the end of season four, you're fully ensconced in the overriding logic of Westeros and its companion continent of Essos and the, uh, the rules of monarchy and of hereditary rule of pre-modern transportation pre-modern communication, pre-modern gender roles, 
of a pre-modern class pyramid and the sorts of constraints and opportunities that that presents to a society. And when people start asking questions like, why is Cersei sitting on the throne when her relation to the throne was via the Baratheon marriage, which was dissolved with, A, the death of Robert Baratheon, and then the three kids she had allegedly by Robert Baratheon, though likely by Jaime Lannister, it, it, it starts to show that there's a disconnect between the guys telling the story and the people watching the story unfold. And right. people looking to rewrite the story however they so choose do so because, among other things, they're presuming that they have a, a fuller understanding of the logic. And mm-hmm. they might actually have mm-hmm. a better understanding of the logic, or mm-hmm. they might not. That that's the other thing is that well, so just because you're watching it doesn't yeah, you know, and and you feel an ownership of it doesn't mean that that ownership is actually valid. Right. Well. Well. So I, as evidence of this, I submit to you that uh, in our casual conversations and you know conversations with other uh, friends of mine, you know, we have come up with over a dozen excellent endings. Game of Thrones endings, which we all agree are excellent in, in or they have their merits, and we're able to do this merely by following the logic of the show with a dash of creative spice, right? And I am not a professional, you know, screenwriter, but if you follow a show that you know has these rules for long enough, you get a sense of the flavor of how you would expect it to end, right? And uh, you know, unless we're intentionally you know, subverting expectations, which are, of course, very narratively satisfying. Uh, unless we're, we're doing that here, it, you know, you really want justification when a show breaks its own rules or intentionally doesn't explain important things that it needs to explain. And Game of Thrones just didn't offer that. It's, it's an unsatisfying conclusion to an excellent show, if for no other reason that it's not fully explained. Right. I, I, I think the, uh, the show is tipping its hat towards that when it talks about the power of story and its relation to monarchy. Yeah, it's a little fourth wall breaky, isn't it? It is. It is. It's a little meta. It's a little meta. It's like you're accepting the monarchy of the showrunners to just right. rule as they will. You can have a three-hour-long podcast about all the things that you didn't like yeah, about just, their narrative choices, Yeah, but... For now, at any rate, there's an escape hatch for some fans. Now, I've only read the first Game of Thrones book. I, the first book of A Song of Ice and Fire, I, I didn't venture past that. But mm-hmm. uh, the fans who read the books and watched the series still have the option of saying everything past season four yeah. isn't canon. And yeah, right. uh, exactly. the only exactly. thing that I care about now is how George R. R. Martin, how he's going to finish the series if mm-hmm. in point of fact he does finish the series which is unlikely which is unlikely mm. and uh even if the series is finished in print likely mm. it'll be with another author yeah if another author is ever selected though even that seems unlikely this i can tell you for a fact that he has named uh, successors and that it's almost certain that the series will be finished at some point and isn't that interesting that yeah. he names successors again yeah. it, it is really like a hereditary rule with yeah isn't that interesting yeah 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 
Yeah. Though I suppose that with the you know the the counterpoint to that is the Tolkien estate in which there's an actual hereditary rule where it passes from J.R.R. to his son Christopher. Christopher hasn't handed over the reins to anyone else. I don't think. No, and as a matter of fact, let me tell you two things about that. First of all, um, I know some Tolkien fans don't actually like Christopher's writing, but I actually think he's his uh, he's his the reincarnation of his father. I think he's absolutely brilliant, and. Uh, and I think he's done a, a great job. I, I have all of his all his work. I have more Christopher's work than I do of his father's. Isn't that isn't that funny? Well, his father didn't um, really finish very much. Uh, no, he didn't. Uh, and there's a uh, whole right. book called Unfinished Tales, isn't there? That's right. Well, you know, most of Christopher's career has been collecting the works of his father, and 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 in so doing, and you have to give him this. In so doing, he's really creating the works of his father, and just as much as he is collating them, right? And so, you know, I, I think it's very difficult to. Uh, practically speaking to separate Christopher Tolkien from his uh, to separate the work of Christopher Tolkien from his father I think they're they're um, uh, the same cloth now anyway I think broadly speaking this the the flavor of Game of Thrones is a is a neo-victorian reaction to our cultural understanding and image of the Middle Ages and uh, rather than envisioning the Middle Ages as this era of knights in shining armor where uh, versus evil villains in black armor and spikes rather than that we have this modern neo-victorian thing where there are no um, knights in shining armor or villains everybody's sort of in gray armor no white knight no black knight. that's right just knights in iron uh, uh, that's right and um so i think they're both extremely f- um extremely flawed uh notions to characterize the middle ages anyway because of course life um, life does have some heroes and some villains, and it also has some gray. But more than that, though, on the storytelling level, I think that there's a reason why storytelling tropes exist all around the world. And the hero and the villain are important storytelling figures. And I absolutely admit that art has the prerogative to subvert those those uh, structures whenever it feels necessary. Fine, no problem. But I do think that there's something lost in a grand narrative that does not fo- uh, follow at least a n- good number of storytelling tropes. And uh, one of the reasons why I think, well, I think it's coincidental that the Game of Thrones ending feels dirty because the whole sort of, its whole philosophy of history, its whole sort of view of human life is very much that, right? It's very much that. Well, and, at least with the with regards to the TV show, maybe not so much the novels. Yeah, although although I I suspect the the novels as well, and and I think that uh, that in attempting to avoid overarching moral narratives or social theses or any of the things that literature really is great at, right, getting those really punchy yet subtle statements about human life and 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 its worth and its goals and all that sort of thing. Instead of doing that, in avoiding it, it's left something that has the veneer of great literature, but is yet somehow shallow in some way and unsatisfying. And I suspect that has something to do with the fact that it's intentionally avoiding a tropes that would you would see in, cl- say, classic medieval stories. Because medieval people didn't tell stories to themselves like this. Uh, medieval people, I mean, there was, a, there was a lot of bastards in medieval stories, to be sure. There's a lot of cruelty, there's a lot of death. But there's also a lot of uh, character tropes and, you know, evil priests, good knights, good priests, 
uh, 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 you know, bad kings, good kings, bad queens, evil queens, sorcerers, good and bad, those sorts of things, right? Uh, and, and anyway, so so to, I really do think that Game of Thrones is a victim of its own genre, and I think it's a neat experiment. And the kind of low fantasy thing, I think is, I I do like it, and I I certainly you know I'm going to watch it for the rest of my life. But I think it does suffer from its narrative choices and not necessarily in a positive way. What do you think? Yeah. Do you agree? Is that I, too harsh? Uh, I, I think that the show continued running with a, a, a downbeat, dour perspective of human nature at exactly the point in the story when it should have been reversing some of that and looking for those green shoots. The show tore apart the Stark family and promised a, a rehabilitation of their status and structure. And we got some of that, but not quite. And then we were promised, you know, uh, a downfall of the Lannisters. And when that finally came, that didn't seem to feel right either under the circumstances that it happened. And we yeah. were we were hoping for Daenerys to have some kind of character arc that would relieve her of the fire and blood that Targaryens are known for. And see, that didn't really happen either. And, you know, maybe maybe with time we'll look back at all this and say, well, that was really great storytelling. It subverted all of our expectations, and maybe we needed that. Maybe maybe we're we've the maybe. problem that we have is that we have too many stories with predictable endings and they're too pat and too reassuring and what we really need is something to shake us well okay so um if you'll forgive again the the comparison i think this is exactly you know i wouldn't be surprised if this was one of in the intent of the story of the story writers not unlike the attitude that's the story writers have taken to uh the latest star wars films and that is that they they're simultaneously Again, this is my argument for the strength of the tropes is because people, right. I think people understand these stories in those tropes. You can't get away with it. Yeah, And if you're going to subvert it, you have to do it very carefully because otherwise people are going to be like, well, where's my tropes? And this is exactly what's happened, I think, in Star Wars and, uh, in, and in the last seasons of Game of Thrones where, yes, people were understanding that the show was subtly subverting tropes all the way through and right. yet they're still present. And uh, then when everything wraps up, People are are looking for handholds of meaning. They're looking for for things to identify with and to explain what's happening. And those are circumstantially provided very uh, very competently by your, our traditional storytelling tropes. If you're not going to do that, well, you damn well better provide other ones, on, or, or else people are going to be simply dissatisfied with how you've told the story because it's going to feel wrong. Is monarchy really mm. about telling a good story? <laughs> <laughs> no, like seriously, uh, that, that yeah. would appear to be the observation that they end the entire show on. Yeah. It's an it's a it's not really set up in previous seasons to be perfectly clear, but it is the one that gets Bran the vote. Well, if Bran has a function, and to be clear, I still don't know what his function is. If Bran has a function, it has something to do with stories. That's what you know the show ends yeah, up they, resolving around. Yeah, stories and memory. Yeah. Stories and memory. Yeah. Now, at the expense of sounding entirely too flippant or nihilistic, I do think there is actually something to the notion that 
systems of government are stories that we tell each other. I don't sure. go so far as to suggest that they are given legitimacy by the strength of the story. I I, I think that that's a little too. Uh, what's the word? Well, well, hold on. Let me uh, let me meet you where you where you rested there. I'm going to agree with you, uh, insofar as that you know, if we say that systems of government are a unifying principle around which to organize ourselves, insofar as that principle is arbitrary, and we could have chosen any one of a number of organizational principles, uh, I think people, if they have a choice, choose a narrative which they prefer, right? I mean, that's kind of saying nothing, but um, each narrative has a you know a value, and the democratic narrative certainly has a of value and a meaning to the people who agree to be um, unified by it. Every political organizing principle has a meaning, and you know, and, and in many ways, the kind of the kind of uh, tropes which I argue are lacking or uh, avoided in Game of Thrones are the tropes that help explain those sorts of things. Yes, this show, which is surrounded by the hereditary monarchy idea. Um, doesn't pay that much attention to its rules uh, and it it kicks it around in a very modern way. To bring this full circle, what makes that uh, so interesting is that Game of Thrones has spent really until the final 30 minutes of episode six of season eight, the final season, upending tropes and subverting our expectations. And then in the act of telling us that it is the power of story that upholds political leadership it again subverts our expectations by not turning this into why we should have john snow aegon targaryen right. the rightful heir to the throne on the throne right. but rather his cousin bran stark mm. so there's some mixed messaging there mm, absolutely is well, it is it you know in well, and, and maybe maybe I'm assuming too much of this narrative trope here, but he says Tyrion's argument is that it's it Bran has the best story, and that doesn't necessarily indicate or imply that his story has some sort of trope to it that is being lived in Bran. But it would seem to suggest that if you're talking about the support of the Seven Kingdoms, or I guess six kingdoms in this instance, you would need most people to be on board and it would seem to be the case that most people in some manner or another want at the end of their story a trope to be fulfilled right and this is why that ending is so bizarre because at the same time it, it, it ends on this sort of what's the word this scion of the trope of story but it spent so much time trying to you know, uh, dodge that trope. Not least the one of the main characters in this whole story, uh, story let's not forget, is Daenerys. And Daenerys has been constantly subverting the tr- tropes, this whole, she wants to break the wheel. She wants to be a powerful ruler, but good. She wants to free the slave, but she also wants to rule. She want, Like it's this constant, constant bit. And at the end, you're going to rest on a trope. And, you know, my... My take on that is that that you need to rest on tropes, number one, in order to attempt to have some kind of narratively satisfying conclusion where people feel like there's some closure. But since they haven't been setting that up, which is what a good story does, 
the payoff is 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 impotent. It's like ugh. I think the show deceived itself mm. Mm. early on, thinking mm. that people were stuck to the show and addicted to it simply because it was subverting expectations. But that's not quite what was happening. Take the ex- execution of Lord Eddard Stark. Yeah. Right. That's that's the first that's the first time that people went, oh, yeah. Oh, my God. This is awful. What's going on here? And that's what got people really hooked because right. in the first season, it had viewers, but it wasn't the cultural phenomenon it is now. No. But that's probably when it kicked into high gear because then people said, you got to watch this show, Game of Thrones. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. You're thinking this entire time that Sean Bean is the main character and yeah. he's going to carry us to the end of the show. Yeah. But then they cut his head off in episode nine of the first season. Yeah. What's going on? Nobody rides in to save him at the last minute. No, he's just dead. Precisely. Precisely. So what's going on here is that within the, within the logic of the show that's set up, actually that is the, the most reasonable thing. That is the most reasonable conclusion. Excellent. Yeah. Right. That's an excellent point. And it would, it would actually be illogical for him to be saved at the last minute. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's not that you're surprised. It's that you're just not expecting a show to follow its own logic so rigorously. Or, Same thing with the Red Wedding. Or, yeah, well, hold on. or especially when the logic entails a, such a distasteful act. Right. Right. That's the you're, you're expecting this, the story to pull back at the precipice. Yeah. To threaten that distasteful act, but not make you endure it making that distasteful act a reality, but the but Game of Thrones got its reputation by building the rules to engender distasteful acts occurring, having the distasteful acts occur, and, and then showing the consequences. Exactly, and that's right. what drew people to the show. Right, right. It wasn't. People often characterize it as this idea that anybody can die, and that's true, but that's not really all there is to it. People die when they disobey the rules of that world. So Rob Stark fell in love with a a nurse or something. Yeah, that's something right. like that. That's right. And uh, at the same time, he was already engaged to be wed to one of the phrase. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're engaged to be wed in a feudal society, you get wed. That's it. That is, that is, you know, and, and his mother, well, Catelyn Stark is the great example of this, which was that she was originally engaged to be wed to Ned's older brother. Right. That guy was killed by the Mad King, mm-hmm. the last Targaryen that was on the throne. And the, the Tullys, from whom Catelyn uh, descended, said, well, we, we got to maintain this alliance with the Stark somehow. Okay. Uh, why don't you marry Ned instead. Mm-hmm. And she didn't have a choice in this. In her weakness, which is part of her character for her children, she let down her guard and let her son, in effect, have this re- ongoing relationship with a nurse that he met on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Even though, in just the same way that the Tullys were marrying off Catelyn to the Starks to maintain a mm-hmm. strategic alliance so too were the Starks going to marry off Rob to a Frey to maintain that alliance. Right. And that, and that made sense. Because that was according to the rules. And that was, that was part of the rules. And in keeping with the character of Rob, who we're, 
supposed to assume is in his early 20s at the latest, immaturely broke that and had a secret wedding. Mm -hmm. The phrase found out about it, switched allegiance, Mm -hmm. and that led to Rob Stark's death. Mm -hmm. Around the time that that Red Wedding episode came out, the showrunners talked about how this was really what they wanted to show you with Game of Thrones. Like when they, when they had read that scene in the books, they were like, we got to turn this into a TV show. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. I think people were reacting, maybe the showrunners, maybe audiences generally were reacting to the wrong part of the mm-hmm. Red Wedding. Mm-hmm. The Red Wedding wasn't out of nowhere. It wasn't a deus ex machina, right. as it were. It, it wasn't, it wasn't mm-hmm. unpredictable. Mm-hmm. What made the Red Wedding so heart-wrenching was the amount of buildup and how you could see this coming from a mile away. You felt you like just, some, yeah, something was going to happen. And you just weren't expecting that a yeah. show would actually do that. Right, right. Again, and, it's, it, again it's, it's about rigorous logic. It's about, it's about clear setup and clear payoff, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I think what audiences were reacting to in the later seasons of Game of Thrones and why they felt betrayed and why, I suppose you could say maybe story isn't what makes a great, great leadership and therefore why people lost faith in the leadership of the showrunners mm. of Game of Thrones because mm. there are multiple layers to this, like mm. Inception, is that they abandoned the commitment to rigorous logic and instead tried to chase the dragon uh, for shocks and surprising plot twists without the work that requires a really satisfying plot twist. I bet you'd agree with me on this, but let me try this on for a few sides. I also think the show suffers from uh, fan service. I, and I, I, a, number yes. of, a number of characters that are meaningless. Well, okay, but, but there's a deeper point. too much screen time as a consequence of fan, uh, 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 fan desires. It's like me saying that, you know, in, in the first uh, season, Serial Pharrell was my favorite character. I by want to fa- see more of him. Yeah, he was by far my favorite character. What are you going to do? You're going to, you know, make him come back and then make him a, like a main side character, make him a B plot character just because, you know, tons of fans. I mean, if, if that not, wasn't part of the original story and if it didn't have a point to it, don't do not do that. I mean, well, I mean, because what it looks like, and maybe this is conspiratorial, but what it looks like is a blatant attempt by the intellect, the owners of this particular intellectual property to ensure butts and seats. Why don't we say it's something akin to bread and circuses? What do you want? Oh, we'll give you that. Does it actually, will it actually make you happy? Not important. So whatever no, you- No, it'll make you happy, but it won't make you satisfied. No, but that's what I mean. Right. No, but that's, right. No, but that's what I mean. And, and you know, uh, there's a separate ongoing philosophical discussion about what the nature of happiness is. Right. And, one, and two of the main- uh, oh, God, are you talking about this Slavoj Zizek and... Uh, no, no, I'm just saying two of the main opponents in this discussion of what happiness is, is uh, the definition of satisfied and the definition of, well, and, and some, comp- some competing definition of, uh, um, of a, a feeling of happiness. Right. And uh, a satisfied being more of, a, more of an existential sort of fulfillment rather than a feeling of happiness. And so is it, it's pot, you know, some people say that it's possible to feel happy or to be happy if you merely feel happy. There's a level of happiness or satisfaction, depending on how you define human beings and what they're for and what they're meant to do, that can persist even if you don't actually feel happy. So you can be happy even if you're miserable. 
right? You can be completely fulfilled in your life, but have a bad day or something, or be feel uh, angry or upset or distinctly not happy, and yet nonetheless be existentially satisfied. And a lot of this fan service to bring it back feels like a kind of a temporary injection of uh, of uh, of euphoria that doesn't actually include sort of long term satisfaction. Well. It, it what it feels like is uh, a, a dishonest play at tropes, doesn't it? If you if you're yeah, constructing bizarre, the rest of your yeah. narrative around the subversion of tropes, then having a redemption arc for say the Hound, who is in the grand scheme of things a minor character, right. who is cares? confusing on yeah. a thematic level because right. your main thrust being, as I understand it, John, Daenerys, and Tyrion who are the kind of uh, the, the three major yeah. plot lines, the three point of view characters uh, with the most weight to yeah. their stories. Yeah. Each of the, each in their own way, representing three dominant families of this fictitious yeah. continent. I mean, is it, is it clear that they follow tropes? It's it, when all is said and done, each of their three stories in, in, in a sense subverts these tropes. And yet, mm-hmm. Weirdly, you have a redemption arc for the Hound, who's not that important in the grand scheme of things. Right. You have a redemption arc for, you know... For Brawn, even? For Brawn, in a sense. Right. For, uh, for the Onion Knight. Yeah. You have, uh, yeah. You have a you have a redemption arc for Melisandre, yeah, in a sense. That, that's a uh, in a sense. Like, that, that, that's a great point. A lot of these. So the so yeah. the top tier characters, yeah. don't get that. The mid-tier characters get that, but by ways and means. But then it's these mid, like these the the C string. They all seem to get these yeah, these these trope heavy arcs, and it, it it leaves the viewer saying, "Wait a minute, what is your intention with this story?" Well, right, it's all very, confusing. but not it not in, not in an intellectually satisfying sense. The way that when you come away from a great movie. You right. still have questions. Oh, what did that mean? What did that mean? But in a in an engaging way, it's more like when you come away from watching Transformers and you go, "Wait, wait, what?" <laughs> yeah, like I realized Bumblebee was in almost every scene, but did he really? Did his did his character really resolve anything? Yeah, did like, he? Did, is did, he did a he character? Have, yeah, did he have an arc, or was yeah. it just Bumblebee? Look, he's Bumblebee transforming and being cool. It's very bizarre. Well, you know, um, the thing is, all this being said, I'm not outraged by the ending. I think if you're listening to this podcast and you've managed to make it this far, you shouldn't be outraged by this. You really should not be outraged by. We well, shouldn't be surprised. That's for sure. Well, right. You, you know, this is in a weird way. This is, you know, uh, been building up for a long time, and I don't mean that sounds much more cynical. Here, than here's I intended, what I'll. But, here's what I will say about criticism. Yeah. Right. If you feel like you could have written a better ending, I'm not saying this to be glib or uh, sarcastic. I, I mean this quite honestly. I mean this as a positive encouragement of your creative endeavors. Go out and write something of your own. Try your yeah. hand at it. If you fail, you fail. And if you succeed, you succeed. It's, it's a Pascal's wager, if you will, of your own creative genius. Well, the uh, the story of of um, of uh, J.K. Rowling clearly shows that a good story is worth is worth its own weight in gold. Yeah, and you don't have to necessarily be a certain kind of person to 
to be the holder of a good story. You don't need to be a brand to have a good story. You know, uh, it just needs it just needs work. It just needs effort. Right. Nobody's entitled to these sorts of successes or stories. They're just it's what's been made. But right? the the success in a weird way is what you feel for yourself. It's it's that sense of personal satisfaction. But yeah. more to that, when you really sit down and think about it, the best stories you've ever read, come from authors or writers or artists or anything like that, reacting to something that they find dissatisfying, maybe in their own time. So J.R.R. Tolkien mm. was trying to recapture a sense of storytelling and of uh, religious importance that was native to medieval expression but had since been lost by the end of the 19th mm-hmm. century, and he was trying to recapture that. George R. R. Martin... His own Song of Ice and Fire, on which Game of Thrones is based, emerged from a, an, an essentially a criticism of fantasy. If you're really that mad about Game of Thrones, this is your opportunity to sit down and ask yourself what kind of story you want to tell. Now that Game of Thrones is over, people are looking for meaning. People are looking for resolutions, sum-ups, right. you know, conclusions, and the people are starting to... Uh, well, people will be starting to do analysis, which hitherto they may have been holding off because they want to see the, you know, they want to see the, the, the border around the whole picture, right? They want right. to see the whole, the whole bit. And uh, the analysis that we do with these stories is not necessarily indicative of what the author meant. And no. I don't think it, I don't think it necessarily has to be because this is one of the things about stories that um, we can, we can, uh, we can consume them and they can mean things for us that the author may have never intended. And, and, uh, and that's okay. Um, you know, Tolkien never intended, uh, at least, you know, so he consistently said, never intended his stories to be allegorical. There were the religious, spiritual, uh, political, social commentary that people read from Lord of the Rings often. Uh, it was not necessarily intended by him, though it could be argued and it is argued after his death, it's nevertheless present because that's, of course, what um, made uh, that those are the things that helped make him the author that he was because he's a human being in a time and place. And so, too, with George R.R. R. Martin. And so a lot of the analysis I think we could do with Game of Thrones and where we find meaning for it, I'm not sure it's relevant uh, whether or not George R.R. R. Martin necessarily intended this to show that or whatever. But whether or not the author intended your, your, his writing to uh, reflect this point or that point, uh, I, think, I think if we can see it and support it in the text, then it can be useful uh, you know, to you know, use, this, use this text or that piece of art to talk about uh, well, things. And like you know, looking at monarchy, you know, we're talking about monarchy, we're using Game of Thrones as a bit of a jumping up point to think about and talk about the concept of monarchy and governments and whatnot, you know, and story. Did George R. R. Martin intend for his work to be maybe you know to, to be used like that? Maybe it was just art. Maybe it's just a story that he's just writing on his fun time because he likes to write, and and that's fine. You know, maybe there's just this 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 disconnect where right? we don't have to. You well, know, I'll tell you something, Aaron, and this is going to be my final point as mm-hmm. we wrap this up. Mm-hmm. So, are stories really the source of power? Not really, because once the storyteller tells it, once the audience hears it, the audience in some weird alchemical reaction becomes a kind of owner of it 
if only in the sense that they they get to continue talking about it after the story is done. Maybe yeah. in that sense alone, do they own a part of it? Yeah, it, it and will, they take it into directions that you would never imagine. Right, and of course the the best analogy for this is parenthood. You bring mm. a child into the world, you mm. think it's yours, but that child starts having their own opinions. Excellent. And they start talking back to you and they disagree with you. And yeah. maybe they come around again to support you, but you don't know. You don't know. It could go any way you want or any way they want to be more accurate. Witnessing a child which has grown up enough to be independent, to be independent and having done your best to guide that child in a certain direction and then having to witness that child going in a different direction. Not intended, maybe even not intended simply because you could never have imagined it. Like for example, if you were to grow up as a, you know, uh, as one of the early boomers, you could have never imagined that children of yours would become computer programmers. Right? And 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 right. your maybe your values and your understanding of what makes a successful life never included any kind of vision of that thing because of course how could it it wouldn't have existed and so would it be surprising that if that future would have arisen for your children that you would have resisted it somehow no of course not it wouldn't be surprising at all but yeah i i I think your analogy is is just that and and so so to to reflect back on game of thrones i think uh i think we can i think once the dust settles we're going to be able to compartmentalize our disappointment with certain episodes, yeah. certain seasons, and we're going to be able to find the meaning in it that 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 we prefer, and uh, to hold on to it. It will serve its purpose, and 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 not only that, but I, I do really think this is one of your you know an excellent point that you made to me that Game of Thrones will, in all likelihood, spawn a uh, renaissance of um, long term. A medievalish fantasy shows, not least a new Lord of the Rings show from uh, Amazon, which is apparently the most expensive TV show uh, ever made. Right, right, uh, and that's that's still to come out. Um, and so, who knows what that's going to be like? I'm personally extremely skeptical, but of course, it's very difficult to meet my standard as a Lord of the Rings fan. Uh, uh, so, you know, I hope it's great. I would be, it would be amazing if they actually did something from the Silmarillion, which they're planning to do and actually did it justice, that would be impossibly awesome. But you know, I'm going to watch it and take meaning from it as it is. And, and, and that's it. And at the end of the day, it is of course entertainment, right? And certain stories stick with us for our, for certain reasons. And we all just have to, you know, we're all looking for, for new ones, right? Whether or not game of Thrones is the new story that means something to you. You know, uh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. If it isn't, there's tons more out there. Um, you know, and if it is, great. But that that will be a story for another time. In the meantime, yeah. Aaron, let's talk about fishing. Yeah, so uh, we got to go fishing. Um, I uh, I have to pick up a couple uh, new lures in order to target pike because pike right now is the is um is still in season. Uh, in uh, when well, does their season end? Hmm? When does their season end? Pike? Oh, yeah. December. Oh. Yeah, but, but a pike and trout open It's like up. a calendar. Yeah, well, it, um, yeah, there's a, the season description. Hi, I'm Mike. The other guy's Aaron. And you've been listening to Thought Fuzz. If you like the show, tell your friends. If you didn't like the show, tell your enemies that you did. And don't forget to rate us wherever you heard this.
Follow us and continue the conversation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Check out our show notes for all the links. And finally, we'd like to say thank you to our listeners for supporting us. We couldn't do this without you. Until next time, keep it fuzzy.